Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins. And prominent educational thought leader, Adriana Duprada. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education. Those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine being a history teacher and surrounded by a Scotsman and an Italian-Austrian, and they're both art design people. What could you possibly do? You could love every second of it. You and Macintosh is a solution architect. He's the founder and CEO of Notosh. He's got a background in teaching, in the arts, in design, in business, in entrepreneurship. He studied in Scotland and in France. He goes all over the place. He's got his own consulting firm that's grown from his kitchen table in Edinburgh. And now it's in Melbourne, Adelaide, New York, and Toronto. Adriana, I'm so excited to talk to you and Macintosh. Let's go. I'm really excited about today's particular episode in series four, uh, Phil. Nothing more delights me than having the history teacher being schooled on what real learning is like. And I can't wait to get into a conversation around design thinking. You know, it, it's, it's, like, it's like Melbourne versus Sydney, you know? One's an imposter and the other one's the real deal. Are you done? I am done. Anyway, Ewan, it is so wonderful to be with you, my friend, and thank you very much for joining us here on Game Changers. I'm going to actually jump into the very, very first question. It's a question that we actually ask all of our, our listeners, uh, our, sorry, our, our Game Changers, sorry. And that question is, tell us your story, how you've gotten to where you are today. Uh, I'm a teacher, French and German teacher. Um, but the challenge for me working in the, in the kind of tough schools that I was working in was engaging young people. Um, so one of the most transformative things I had, I was very lucky on an email list, you remember those? Um, there was a group advertising, uh, for a, they needed a fourth body to go on a study trip to New Brunswick. And this was the, the League for the Exchange of Commonwealth Teachers. So if any Australians are desperately trying to work out what the Commonwealth is for, it's for free trips to Canada. Um, and we, we got this, uh, four of us went out, three Scots and uh, a wonderful woman from Croydon to examine immersion teaching and how they taught. New Brunswick's the only bilingual province in, in, in uh, Canada, French and English together. So teaching um, Anglophone children purely in French and they've got three different modalities for doing it. It was just fascinating zero technology use as well and before in my head i'd thought i'm gonna to have to use a you know every trick in the book to try and uh, engage these children with a uh, technology pizzazz this is 2002 you know um and going there and seeing zero technology but lots of thought given to planning in particular uh, lots of team teaching lots of co-design I didn't know, I didn't have those words in my head, obviously, I didn't know what co-design was, but designing is what they were doing. So when I came back, instantly started to really design the, the classroom, the physical environment, started to design programs of work rather than units um, or even just lessons day by day, moved away from teaching uh, all the time uh, to uh, trying to work out ways to that children could learn this kind of tough content in a way for themselves and they excelled 
uh, they excelled for you know for three years in the trot. That these these students who was lucky enough to be able to follow some of them all the way through, way outperformed their peers who were learning in a more traditional kind of way. Um, that caught the eye of people in the Scottish government who said, who thought I think it was about technology. <laughs> so they they gave me a, a job um, uh, trying to do the same for languages teachers all over uh, the country. Uh, we did really well in that, engaging nearly uh, 80% of everyone who teaches languages in Scotland in wow. some form of online professional learning every week uh, for that first year. Um, developed it uh, beyond that, had to start looking at how this would work for history teachers, for math teachers, for uh, across the board. But the you know three years of doing that, working in government, three years of having increasingly grey men and women in increasingly grey suits tell me no. It's not possible, can't be done, is enough to make anyone change tack. So I went to work for a TV company instead as an executive, uh, a commissioner with zero qualifications to do so, but did very well. Um, brought together a £50 million investment fund with uh, my colleagues at Channel 4 and then did my best to spend it over the course of two years investing in some um, amazingly creative people. And it was when I saw those amazingly creative people at work, again, I saw people designing, but this time I knew what it was called. And I realized that they had all got the same process. They might use different vocabulary to describe it, but they all had a similar process. They could all describe how they did their work. The process of their work was just as important as the incredible stuff they were producing. And I wondered why on earth schools didn't have that same common language. We, we go to education conferences and spend 90% of the time arguing about what we're trying to say rather than talking about what we're meaning to say. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that's that's something we could change. And that's why I created No Tosh, No Nonsense, to cut through all the, the, the crap that we normally wade our way through before we get to the juicy stuff and to talk about how we design better learning. There's definitely something about the city of Edinburgh that, that really has a clear focus on design. It's, it has a huge international reputation in that particular space uh, for, for doing that. But I want to extend it beyond that Scotland itself, only in, in the last couple of days, I believe there's been a bill that's been brought to Parliament around uh, the, um, the rights of a child. I don't know if you've read anything about that, but this seems to be the only kind of place in the world that has decided, because you, you brought up you know, involvement with, with, with the government, um, and I believe this is from the Education Secretary himself, um, John Sweeney, I believe it is, or I might have that name wrong. Uh, John Sweeney. Yeah. That's, yeah, yeah, sorry. And, and so, so he's, I think the bill before the parliament is in relation to uh, really looking at uh, the UN sustainable goals and, and, but also um, the, the UN declaration around child rights and actually embedding it into law in, in such a pronounced way that probably most Western governments haven't seen before. Well, it's the first. It's the first country in the UK. I don't know about other countries in the West. There's, um, but it, it's taking what is in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, and mm -hmm. putting it into domestic law. Uh, the rights of the child, but they've been agreed, if you like. But it, it, it's then down to individual states to um, almost interpret it in the light of their existing laws. What this does is it puts that law into law, so it, it, you're not reliant on hundreds of years of shaky laws here, written here, here, here and there. You're not relying on case law and precedent. It's actually making it very clear that um, the, the rights agreed for children are uh, the, the rights that every child doesn't just have a, an expectation to, 
now they have to have those things. Uh, it'll be yeah, interesting to see what comes from it, I think, and what it means for uh, what it means for education and and the design of education as well, mm-hmm. because not every child is served equally by education in Scotland, particularly in Edinburgh. Actually, we're twenty five percent of children in Edinburgh go to independent schools. Nationally in Scotland, only 2% do. So there's a massive inequality. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, how we address that through, not through, not through blunt instruments like p- people suggesting that we close private schools. It's just, in my view, that's daft. Uh, private schools actually contribute massively to economy. They do contribute to innovation in the field. Um, and they, they uh, provide a choice. Um, but what it does do is it encourages everyone to raise their game and really put the child at the centre of the decisions they're taking, not just uh, nonchalantly saying we do this for the children. You know, too many yeah, decisions yeah. Are taken are taken without the kid at the centre at all. I, I think it's really interesting, and the reason why I raise it is because so much of what you've been able to do over a, a sustained period of time has been around uh, kind of disrupting the status quo in many, in many ways and helping and helping uh, different industries, not just education come to solutions around uh, various challenges or problems, but more than that, help them to shift from that kind of binary thinking. What's really interesting about this particular bill is exactly what you say. I I actually feel it's a real attempt to uh, really address the issue of equity, but but, but more more profoundly than that, uh, which which is a massive issue and pandemic in most parts of the world, uh, particularly developed parts, uh, but it's also around the amplifying of real voice and agency, which which yeah. is a real construct. So much of um, some of the work that you've done around this notion of community purpose and, and collaborative and, uh, collaborative strategy. Um, yeah. When, when schools are defining their purpose, when schools are defining their mission, uh, that that's for the long haul. You know, what is the what's the secret sauce of our school? And most of the time, it's decided by really weird hierarchical boards who sit around tables coming up with meaningless twaddle that um, that a five-year-old doesn't understand. And the way that you, you come up with something meaningful is go and ask the five-year-old what makes their school tick, what makes their community special, and then use the language of babes. Because when you take the language of children, um, it's plain English. Kids don't use the kind of meaningless jargon. And it, it affects every system, it, particularly in Australia. I'll, I'll be really blunt that it, it's hard to make the difference between the mission statements of one school and another mm-hmm. um, across a city quite often because they use the same um, kind of the same ingredients, just mixed up in a different way. Uh, so how do you how do you mitigate that? How do you um, how do you get around that? You have to ask young people, but not just ask then go and make a decision, but you have to really involve them in the the immersion into what makes their organization special and their role in it. You have to maybe actually pause the process and sort some of your rubbish out when you realize that um, they don't think much of it. You then continue to synthesize and work out what is our secret sauce or what should be our secret sauce that we build on. But then even using the kids in the creation of the language to describe your purpose. And, and I don't know why people don't do it more. We're lucky that um, we have every week schools come to us. Some of the top international schools on the planet have come to us over the past six years to ask us to help them do that. Not because they're incapable, but because it's really hard to do. And it's very hard for people to do when they're in the school. So it's not always a job that a head teacher can do because people want to say the right thing in front of the head or the chair of the board. 
Um, when you're in the box, you can't see the label on the outside of the box. You need someone from outside to do that for you. And that's, I think, why we've had such success helping schools carve out beautifully simple, really meaningful missions that, that make people smile. Ewan, there's a, well, there was a poet with the Scottish spelling of my surname, E.E. E. Cummings, who once said that the hardest thing in the world to be is yourself when everybody around you is <laughs> trying to tell you to be something else. And I want to explore a little bit of what you were just talking about. You know, you said, I don't know why. I want to posit an answer to you and then explore that. I think the reason why people don't do that is because they're not iconoclasts. They don't see differently. And if they, don't, if they do see differently, then they then have to have the courage to act on that. And most people simply aren't prepared to do that. So the reason why you have every mission statement being the same is the same reason why in our country, every school's got a swimming pool. Why they got a swimming pool? Because every other school's got a swimming pool. Yeah, even, it's even architectural. If they, uh, even if they don't need one. We you call know, it architectural uh, pornography. It's absolutely. To oh, sell no, your school to the, the lowest bidder. Exactly. It's crazy. I mean, there's a, there's a school we were doing some work with in, um, in New Zealand a, a wee while back, and they had four Olympic swimming pools within two kilometres of the school. And they still felt the need to promise their school a, a community a pool. And you're thinking, why? Why would you do that? You founded this company called No Tosh because you didn't want the guff that goes with most stuff. You, you think about things that sound obvious, which are co-creation and involve the community. Get kids involved, get teachers involved, get leaders involved. You know, there's a school that we're working with right now in, uh, in Victoria. Um, uh, and it's a school with lots and lots of ideas that have never had any valency because they've had to go through exactly the same sort of hierarchies. Yes. How do you help people? I've got two questions for you. So this is the first yeah. one. How do you help people to see differently? And then once they do see to act on it in such a way that they don't end up doing the same old rubbish. So a few seconds. Books. You always need books. So I've picked. Pretty much at random, three books from my bookshelf. And um, it's not how good you are, it's who, how good you want to be by Paul Arden, the world's best-selling book by Paul Arden. That's the first problem. Um, Australia and Scotland share something with uh, our, our um, Scandinavian friends, Juntelage, or Tall Poppy Syndrome. Mm. It's not good to say that, it's not good to boast, but actually when you declare a mission that's different from everyone else, you're kind of boasting that you've got something special in your community. It's not really boasting because you're, you're as when I do it, I'm shining a beautiful light on that, that community and saying, this place is really special. You should come here. But some, I think in education, some people think that there is a, a finite amount of beauty and a finite amount of difference that you can have in the education community. And uh, to declare that your school is any, you know, is different. Uh, but through your mission is seen as a kind of, um, uh, you know, first of all, very hard to do, um, maybe a little bit trite, and they maybe even think it's limiting. But actually, when your purpose is super clear, um, it's more than just, uh, there's plastic purpose. That's the, I call it plastic purpose because it sits on a plastic uh, acetate thing on the wall and no one ever reads it and no one can remember it and no one uses it. But when you get your, your purpose right, then coming up with ideas is very quick and killing ideas is very quick. 
so you can actually be more efficient and effective in doing better work. When your purpose isn't clear, then every idea can pass, even the bad ones. You've not got any filter uh, for, for ideas. And if you don't have a filter for ideas, people know that anything goes, there actually a weird thing happens. People stop generating ideas because there's just the sea of, there's a sea of mediocrity and their idea is going to get caught in it. So um, defining your purpose in a really clear, succinct way is something I think every community has to do. And actually on quite a regular basis, the meaning might not change, but the wording might to suit better um, what you're doing at the moment. And during this last crisis, um, I would ask everyone listening to this, if they work in a company or if they work in a school, did you refer to the purpose of your organization during this time as a way to shape what you were doing, to uh, change your attitude when you were beginning to feel down about things, uh, to set up your systems, to set expectations? Did you use your mission? Because actually the only thing organizations should have been using was their purpose and their mission. Keep things simple in a crisis. The more complex you get, the more lost people become. But I'll be honest, it's really hard to use some missions that I've seen, some purposes, um, because they, they, they don't give a clear enough uh, boundary as to what you're meant to be doing and how you're meant to treat the people around you. So what are the so other two keep... books you pulled off the shelf there? Yeah, well, I ended up pulling a fourth one. Um, so, <laughs> uh, this one's pretty good, all about purpose. David Hyatt, the founder of Hyatt Jeans. Um, and the, the, the innocent drinks, for example, um, I think you have innocent drinks in, in Australia too. It's this sort of every, 20 oranges make up this orange juice and nothing else. It's kind of pure, uh, yep, 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 pure yep, juice yep. or pure, pure smoothies. Um, the minute that the, the founder went into the back of a taxi and the guy said, uh, gave him the address of the HQ after an event or something. And the taxi driver said, oh, do you work there, do you? And he went, yeah. He said, oh, I used to drink them all the time, but I don't anymore. And he said, oh, why don't you? because so, you started um, putting these plastic shiny labels on the bottles and before it was a nice matte sticker you know but when you put the shiny one on it just felt very corporate it felt like you'd become like all the others and he's the first thing he did when he get, went to the office he said cancel the plastic labels we're going back to paper and they replaced all the all the bottles with that paper so purpose can define a tiny decision like uh, do we use shiny or natural paper on our bottle uh, that decision can incline people to buy or, in this case, not to buy. So your purpose is hugely important. I've got, um, my name is Charles Saatchi and I'm an artaholic. Charles Saatchi's all right. His brother Morris was even better. Um, and the reason I picked this one off, there's Charles. So Morris looks like him, but older and grumpier. Um, Morris Saatchi is famous for um, having walked through uh, the park. I think it was Hyde Park. There was a... a a person with a, a sign or a beggar with a sign saying give me money and he went up with a marker pen because any decent creative always has a sharpie on them and changed it and when he changed the sign the guy ended up getting tons of money from people passing by what did he change the sign to he said it's a beautiful day and i can't see it and so when you change the sign to that he was blind so the minute you change that that sign uh, rather than I'm blind, give me money, it becomes, um, uh, it's a beautiful day and I can't see it. And it makes the difference in people uh, making a decision or not taking a decision. So language is important. And then the final one, which is about your attitude, would be whatever you think, think the opposite. Another Paul Arden book. Um, so uh, 
you know, the, the age of unreason. Uh, do it, then fix it as you go. When, you know, a lot of people think that strategy is something you plan out in advance for the next five years, then you press the, the, the go button. At Notosh, we believe that it's sort of ready, fire, aim. So um, get, get ready, get, get people together, do something, and then work out where you need to aim afterwards. School boards are terrified by that idea. But actually, I was about to say there's a whole of ed- educators that are going to be very, very nervous hearing that sort of thing. Um, um, I, I, I love hearing you talk about purpose in this way. And, you know, it's in our, in our previous, you know, prior to this um, uh, conversation, we were talking about a research that we've been doing around the world and into an education for character and competency and wellness. And yeah. the answer is it's fundamentally about putting together the competencies that make up a purpose-driven life, which are about learning, living, leading, and working. You know, when I look at what you guys are doing, you're talking about thinking and learning and working. I think, oh, there's, there's, there's some line up there. You see differently. Can you teach people to see differently? I know that we can teach people to live according to purpose, but if we can't teach them to see differently, then they'll always reinterpret their purpose according to what they have seen rather than what might be. Can you teach people to see differently? You can. You can teach people to think differently. We do it. We've been doing it for a decade. Um, Stephen Covey came up with the the idea of toolkit, skill set, mindset. It's not a bad way to break things down. So the first thing is uh, people sometimes stop too early. So if you go to a, a typical design thinking workshop, or even if you go to, you know, one of an early art class with, with Adriano and colleagues, you know, I'm sure the first thing you do is you learn a bit of technique. You learn a skill, a new skill. So there'll be a core skill you're trying to communicate. Uh, how do you learn that core skill? We're going to give you the tool that allows you to do that thing. So I always, try, I always remember trying to make rubber um, stamps. You get a, a sheet of rubber and you get that tool and you have to try and design a beautiful stamp. Beautiful, yeah, right. Not the first time. Basically, so a lino tool that you carve into. That's right. The yeah, yeah, and, and what you're really yeah. trying to do is not take a chunk out of your palm while you're exactly. out of the lino. Yeah. That's very true. Exactly. And the nervous teacher behind also yeah. keep, you don't um, maim yourself. So um, that's about learning a, a how to use a tool. When you first use the tool, you normally screw it up. You normally do remove a, a fair amount of um, mm. tissue and bone. So the, the first time you use it, it normally doesn't quite work out. You've got to use it a few times. You've got to have a second piece of lino that you can use. And that's where a lot of schools fall down. So they resource it for one go when actually spaced space learning is really how you're going to pick up the skills. You need to, you need to get it wrong the first time, but you need to know that you can get it wrong because there's the, the, the lino is not that precious. We can give, give you another square of that. By the second, third time, you actually picked up a skill. Very hard to put your finger on what that skill is. A good teacher will get the kids to describe what do you think the skill is. And the kids will give jargon because they're conditioned to that. But when you start talking about it, actually, it's about dexterity. You could be saying, did anyone try their non-writing hand to see what it's like when you do that? Um, uh, What about reverse imaging? So you've got a picture in reverse what it is you're trying to do. Um, How do you think you'll use it with colour in the future projecting forward? So that one tool can lead to the development of a few skills. A gifted teacher will think, what's the next thing I'm doing with them? And can I pick up half of those skills and develop them further with a new tool? And so um, when you start doing that, when the skill, when the kid is automatic in the skill, now they have a different mindset about things. 
So when you have a different mindset, you can go in with much more um, ambition in a project, even if you don't yet have the skills to achieve it. You can go in with more ambition, more gutsy. You can go in and look at something differently all of a sudden and say, right, instead of painting that still life, I'm actually going to try to do a two-dimensional lino that represents that still life and still gets the 3D effect which is really hard to do and you'll probably fail at it, but trying is actually more interesting. And as long as the kid's writing a learning log alongside it, that's the learning log is the thing you're, you're assessing, not the final result, because I would prefer that. That's a kid pushing themselves uh, as an artist, thinking like an artist, not thinking like a kid who's got to pass a test. So you can teach differently. And um, there are different mindsets. The, the two simplest are simply, divergent and convergent so you want kids to think divergently you've got to get them interested in loads of stuff if you want teachers to think divergently you've got to take them around the houses sometimes and get them reading stuff they wouldn't normally read so my bookshelves are full of stuff that are nothing to do with education juxtaposed with classics um, and I think with the education classics you, I always make sure that I'm alternating my reading uh, trying something different. I'm reading Yvon Chouinard at the moment. He's the founder of Patagonia, uh, Let My People Go Surfing, because uh, I'm trying to work out how um, in this crisis time where my colleague um, is also in lockdown in Melbourne. Um, I'm not in lockdown, but I've got nowhere to go. For someone that was used to traveling 160,000 miles a year, it mm. feels like I'm in lockdown. Um, so I'm trying to think of, you know, how do I help my people go surfing in, 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 in their heads or for real? And not feel they have to come to work every day. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think I know something about that about that travel regime. I think last year I did somewhere between two hundred and twenty-five and fifty days of travel, and this year I've moved from Melbourne to Sydney, and that's it. And so it's it's it's, it's quite quite an interesting challenge. Hearing you talk about the process there and and the, the line thing, you know, one of the things that we talk about. Uh, at a school for tomorrow when we're talking about with our team is that the first time we do something will be the worst time we do it and if we yeah. all just accept that and we're all open about it then the next time will be better and better and better I want to talk about how people achieve change in their lives and, and the lives of people around them and then I'll back off for a bit and let the art teacher ask a few questions that he's dying to ask in your in the world that we are in at the moment there is a great hunger, I think it's an inchoate hunger a lot of time and deeply emotionally informed. Um, and that doesn't mean it's not valid. It just means it might not be workable for revolution, for smashing stuff down and so on. Our experience would suggest that smashing stuff really doesn't do more than fulfill the need to smash something that you build incrementally and you build gradually can you give me an example of communities that you've worked with or a community that you've worked with that has been able to transform itself particularly in terms of a social agenda by building incrementally is there, is there a case study you could talk to yeah uh choosing one's heart i think all of them have done that to some degree especially ones that we would write up in a case study <laughs> um yeah so i've got two i've got um we'll go to adelaide and we'll go to to nanjing in china um, because you could you couldn't ask for two more contrasting places, could you? Um, the, these are two schools that are, are really interesting. So um, my colleague Chantel has been uh, leading a project um, at uh, the new Macaulay Community School in Adelaide. And what's interesting is that 
it was all about closing one school. So you talk about blowing things up, nothing quite as, as big as just closing a school and mer- you know, merging, bringing people together to a new location. It's, it's a recipe for disaster potentially. So when um, in, in 2017, I think it was, um, I went with Chantel to the Catholic Education Office and they were talking about this new school um, that was coming together. And, and of course, traditional systems are massively hierarchical so this is a decision that's been taken I, i'm not a fan of the passive voice a decision was taken well you know actually someone sat down and took that decision but when we put it in the passive it becomes just this institutional thing a decision was taken um we we wanted to turn that into an active voice as quickly as possible so the community could start taking decisions the community could start shaping what they were doing so we brought together um you know uh, design teams and the leadership team themselves in the school in this kind of deep immersion and for us that those kinds of small steps are about observing what's right under your nose i am not a fan of of, of diving in and blowing things up straight away you've got to listen first um, most of the time when you listen to people they don't want stuff blown up most of the time when you listen to people there's a bit of magic somewhere but it got smothered out along the way and so they want to try and rekindle that um, we observed a, a huge uh, variety of educator practices, um, a hugely different set of learner experiences within one school day. <clears throat> you know, it wasn't one school. It was, it was a couple of schools coming together and, and it showed. Um, there was a, the, the original vision had this kind of renewed focus on STEM, um, but on the ground, that hadn't really changed people's thinking. It was a typical kind of like, we're going to do STEM but no one, no one knew about it. So what you had were still those distinct subject specialisms working away. And that's, and just, um, and just, and just to cut in for a moment, that's now a well-worn track in schools. We're doing right. STEM, we're doing STEM, we're doing STEM, and no one can even tell you what STEM is. And, it, and, and, and beyond, as you said, the plastic purpose on the wall, there ain't nothing real about yeah. it. But when we listened to teachers and students, parents and the leadership team what came through is they actually just wanted the learners active um, they realized they re- they knew that the kids were just were kind of passive learners a bit like the the passive decision taking that sometimes happens in these processes so the getting those learners active was key um more the usual word collaboration but collaborations are out, an outcome almost of getting other things right so we really focused on questioning beautiful questioning, how to get the kids asking more questions than the teachers, how to get them asking ungoogleable questions. And ungoogleable questioning is something that you know, we coined in 2011 um, in the BBC News because it was you know, the Swedes, uh, Swedish government said you couldn't call things ungoogleable. Um, it wasn't in the dictionary. Uh, I thought that was brilliant. That, that, that you get all these kinds of uh, uh, political reasons why you can't do something makes me want to do it even more. We got kids thinking about um, using a design thinking framework or, or kind of immersion synthesis, ideation, prototyping, feedback loops uh, to talk about the phase of learning they were in, take a bit more control over their own planning as well. And then during, 20, that's 2018. And then 2019, they start constructing the new school campus. So even before um, the, the, this incredible new space is built, you've got teachers realizing small successes on the ground with questioning or small successes on the ground with feedback cycles. None of that is particularly threatening and none of it is blowing up the system. 
what it's doing is, is giving teachers small early wins that feel like they've won the Olympic gold because they've suddenly got this engagement from, from their pupils that they hadn't had before. And we've, you know, this project is, is still kind of ongoing. Um, we, we created a report at the end of 2019 to kind of write down in black and white, you know, here is where this school has grown to already. It's so important to do that before they move into the glass and steel of a new school. Because what you're saying is a lot of the success was there before you had the, the shiny new spaces and the cool furniture. Now that you've got those spaces, what are you going to do to push it even further? Um, and, you know, we, we, one of the teachers said this, so, you know, the, the work that we've done with Notosh has helped us clearly see that inquiry and using a process like design thinking can actually embed so many of the outcomes that we're meant to achieve uh, in every one of the key learning areas that you're not having to slice and dice. You can actually just use a process and up your game in a couple of strands of pedagogy and very quickly start making massive strides for some of your weakest students as well and, and close that achievement gap. So um, common language, super important. That's design thinking at its least is a common language that everyone in a school can speak. And that has in itself a massive impact because people stop talking about trying to understand each other, they can move beyond that and talk about what they're actually doing. Um, we increase the confidence of, the edu of many of the educators in that school, confidence in their learning and teaching, confidence to try something out, it might not work, have a go and see, to prototype their own practice. We sought the opinions of students and expect students to keep giving their opinion in that, and they've got structures that allow them to do that. It's beyond do you want lockers or not? This is about how do you want to learn? What do you want your experience to feel like? So hugely powerful. And, and that, that's a relatively recent story, but we've been doing this for ages. In Nanjing International School, we did the same. And there, it was actually, the question came up about redesigning the physical environment of the school. Now, they could have gone down, let's do a STEM space, or let's do a... They didn't. We listened to the community. And what came out was early years needed a space where they could really uh, embrace the, the, the radio style of, of, of approach they had taken. And high school and middle schoolers also wanted, in effect, like radio for adults. <clears throat> they wanted a similar space that they could use. And if you go to the Nanjing International School website, you'll see how the hub is developing for middle school and high school kids. And you'll see the amazing work um, done on the back of our report. We write reports called Dear Architects, like a letter to the architect. It says, you know, here's, we asked ourselves these questions and here's what we heard back from ourselves. Um, and it, it doesn't, we never ask a kid, we never ask teachers, what space do you want? Because their architectural knowledge is largely limited to Ikea on a Saturday morning. We ask them, what kind of learning experience do you want? And then we take it to the architects and say, here's the kind of experience they want. Now you, with your design brilliance, can you create that experience with them? And in the end, it was a lovely, amazing Perth architect, EIW, who collaborated with us on the, the finished product, the finished space, which is just beautiful. So go and have a look at that. It doesn't, it doesn't transmit very well on radio. You need to go and look at the pictures and the videos yourself. <laughs> I've been sitting here, um, Ewan, and listening to the, the, what you've been sharing and also the questions that, that Phil has been asking. And it is very rare that I sit here in such silence uh, in, in these chats. Normally I would have interjected by now, but my mind is, is racing 100 miles an hour with so much that you're sharing with us. I want to I take us back a little bit to this notion of when you made the decision that you're going to enter into a space that will attract 
interest and ridicule in the same amounts of time or space. Because you, you speak about this, this tall poppy. You're touching, you're touching a very raw nerve. Okay. You, 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 um, you, you, know, you, you spoke about this tall poppy thing, which is really alive and well. And, and what's interesting about that is that men, all of our guests, I would say, have been re- received by the community exceptionally well because they're simply sharing a, their story. What I like to call that story is a remarkable story. But when I use that phrase in many schools, particularly here in Australia, they balk at the idea of the word remarkable because then they think it's showboating. They think it's, it's yeah. a, a being grander, grandiose. And I keep on saying, not at all. We, we are a human-centred uh, uh, ecosystem. That is remarkable in itself. Yeah. And, and we need to be launching up. For, but when, when was that moment in your journey that you made that decision to go, well, I have something to say here. I feel like I have something to contribute. Uh, I don't think I had a moment. I didn't have a, ta-da. There was no light in the sky. Yeah. Um, there was, uh, I was working at Channel 4, uh, commuting to London from Edinburgh once or twice a week. Um, it kills you eventually. So I had to stop. It was also a two-year commission. And so 18 months in, um, I, I went, I think it was uh, the, the, you know, the program of work that we had was at its end, coming to its end anyway. So I was lucky I had a, a, a bit of money in my back pocket from an overpaid job in media and I had time to think. So when I started um, Notosh, it was actually quite a modest goal, which was simply, I think that schools could have something to learn from the creative industries, but I actually think the creative industries could learn a lot about how to give nicer feedback to each other from the, the world of kindergarten. Um, and I set out with that very modest kind of uh, purpose, not with any goals in mind. I think the, the first goal I had was to, um, uh, to, to employ someone. I wanted, I've always wanted a team because you, it's really hard to, to, to do good work without a team. Now, the intervening nine years have been fantastic. We've had, um, I think Notosh has helped set up a lot of people um, on their own creative journey and um, not just our clients who we work with but our former employees who've gone on just to do amazing things and to do really high quality work so it's been fantastic from that point of view in Scotland like you there there is a little bit of tall poppy about saying um, we're really good at what we do but we are really good at what we do and the projects speak for themselves we probably could do a better job speaking about those projects to be honest we have transformed the way that Google do their professional learning. Um, we've uh, transformed the, the way that um, Apple undertook their um, program of work, launching the iPad into schools across Europe. Uh, we've changed the way strategies done across the board in international schools. Um, in the space of five years, there's, there, there are very few schools left doing five-year plans in the international schools world. We've... Um, we helped win an election in 2011 that led to the first referendum on Scottish independence mm-hmm. uh, through our digital strategy, which we directed for that. So we've, we've done tons of great stuff, but, um, you know, you, no, we don't talk about it a lot for that very reason. Yeah. This year, this year's probably been the toughest year I've had in a decade. And what I've discovered is that um, contacts and collaborations that were difficult to do before for all sorts of reasons, uh, logistics, um, how to how to make it work uh, on a simple uh, business level. You know, how do how do we split this big project up and make it work? Those have become easier to do because we, you know, we're moving 
we're, we're moving so much of what we do online. Where you are is definitely not important anymore. Um, it's really just the quality of the quality of what you're doing. And so I think what what you will discover is that more people are putting their ideas forward. I hope more people put their ideas forward and say, I think this might be worth paying attention to. I think we'll have the same filter challenge that we had a decade ago when social media really exploded and you didn't know who to follow, who to listen. And a decade ago, we all felt there was too much an onslaught. There was too many, too many new ideas. I think they'll have the same again, but in a really good way in that the, the, there's, a, I think, a limitless um, audience who are seeking different ideas for their work, for their life, for the way that they, they teach, for the way that they learn. And there are a limitless number of ways of going about it. And that we should really rejoice in the fact that there are going to be so many of those that are accessible online, at a price that is a fraction of what it was a year ago. Because a year ago, um, people in Australia still would phone up and say, hey, can you come and do this workshop? But it's a day. Yeah, that's all right. And they would expect us to fly around the world on a 30-hour flight one way and 30 hours back to do a day. And the costs involved are, are daft. Whereas we can invest the same amount of money in a year-long program that allows us to work with hundreds of people in a really rich way and get so much more out of people and give people that sense of community. So I, I, I think that um, I, I'm, I'm really, I said you touched the wrong nerve because this year's, uh, this year's been the year of having a, a, you know, of, of having to put new ideas out in a very public way. We're about to launch a bunch of online programs, which is a bit like your kid's birthday party. Will anyone turn up and will anyone come in time? Um, or will it, will it fizzle out? So that's, we're launching these online programs. And, and, and Ewan, can I just jump in there for a moment? Because yeah. the, the, the week that we're recording this right now, and there's so much of what you've been talking about that we've experienced. I mean, there's just like, uh, uh, again, this year has been, I think, the most remarkable year for me professionally. I've just loved so much of this year. Um, and, you know, the Dickens thing, you know, the best of times, the worst of times. This is the week we're launching the online programs that we've been preparing since 2012 and all the research. And as you said, you're sitting there going, I wonder if anyone's actually going to use these along the way. But, you could, but you've just yeah. got to do it, though, don't you? So what's, what, what's the... What what's the courage piece in all of this? Um, I don't know of it. I don't know. If, I don't know if it's courage. I think I've come this year, so I've not had the most remarkable year. <laughs> I've had uh, I've had probably the toughest year. I think that um, I think there's so much crazy, crazy stuff going on out of outside our realm of control, and I think that. Um, maybe in normal times, I've, I've felt that we've been able to navigate that and con you know, take control in some way. And this year, I sort of sat back and said, no, I can't, I can't control. So the, the first thing is, I realized this year, I can't, I'm not responsible for making other people happy. Um, that's their responsibility to some degree, which sounds a bit brutal and cruel. But it's, um, it's really important to realize that everyone, everyone's, having, uh, everyone's had their own year this year. Everyone has taken it in different ways. And you can't, I think for school leaders, um, I mean, eventually in Victoria, you're able to welcome your kids back on campus again. No one had the same experience. And you can't assume people have had a bad time. My daughters thrived in lockdown. They got good at maths because they had time to get, to get into it. Um, 
they they thrived in history because it wasn't lists of stuff to learn. Instead, we watched films of the Selma Bridge together and and learned about things that way. Um, you know, the, people have had positive experience. A lot of people found it very tough for lots of different reasons. And, and even defining, the conversations would be endless to define it. What I would love, I hope someone is inventing it, is the kind of the, the program of support that allows people to really reflect on um, what makes them tick, what makes them content and happy individually uh, with what they're doing. To I can, can I, can I introduce I think, it to you? It's called the Pathway to Excellence. It's, well, there you go. Literally, it's out there for me. So there it is. Now, the courage question. Courage is linked to ego. And I've my ego has taken enough bumps over the years to realize that it gets in the way of doing good work. Um, courage is linked to ego. Courage, courageous leadership makes it sound like you're kind of um, standing out front, taking the bullets. And actually, it's not, it's not fun. It's not particularly useful for your team either. You need to be able to. You need to be able to slow down. You need to be able to pause. You need to be able to to have a go at creating something that you think could be of use to someone. And then, yeah, there there are tools and skills about how you get it under their noses. I think, and that's uh, that is something that we're good at. But you know, uh, you know, you and it's really interesting because for me, courage is something that that um, has an intention about it. And and what I mean by that is that. It's about having a consciousness of not only the other, but the sign of the times. And there are so many school leaders who uh, we have encountered that are excellent at managing a response. But then, of course, we encounter those ambitious leaders who have led through the crisis. And what I'm hearing you describe in many ways is that although there's been real challenges this year, it also has been a great opportunity for you to grow uh, from, from an intellectual base about what's next what's possible yeah. and not only in your own business, but in, in the way in which we conduct business in all industry. So what I'm interested really in exploring here, um, and I'm very conscious of time. So I'm going to shoot off some pretty short, short questions to you um, uh, and get your perspective. The first is so much of what we're discovering this year is the foundational thinking of enterprise skills or enterprise thinking, you know, mm. adapt um, um, adaptability, uh, agility, learning agility, uh, really focusing on self-efficacy, even leveraging up the emotional competency that's required to, to have that empathy for the other and listen, which is, you know, the first stage mm. of, of really good design thinking. What, what role do you see enterprise thinking or skills in today's classrooms for tomorrow's world? I think that entrepreneurial thinking is design thinking. They are the same. The, the tools are the same to in order to build up those entrepreneurial skills. The skills are the same uh, that help you build the kind of mindset of occasionally being courageous and occasionally shutting up and listening to the person in front of you, which is the antithesis of courageous. It's, it's being meek and humble and, um, and taking the other person's view as being more important than your own. So I think that the, the, the entrepreneurship it's the latest thing. It's the new STEM in Australia, but it's not new. Um, there's plenty of people with this with the skill sets already seeded throughout schools, ready to ready to to go. So yeah, I think the skills are there. I think the tools are there. It's not rocket science. Um, I think they're essential, but I wouldn't teach it in entrepreneurship class. Sure. You know, uh, this leads me to my next point around the notion of a solution architect. We, we would define a, a solution architect at a school for tomorrow around someone who has a deep understanding on how to build and use tangible models of achieving desirable processes and product outcomes. Someone who has a capacity to create and evaluate 
that's what you're talking about here in many ways, uh, a range of possible considered options. Someone who, who works towards assessing the impact of that solution on the basis of both evidence and, and judgment, trial and error. And also someone who has this deep capacity to, to continue to reflect about the relationship between the direction and the creative and critical thinking skills that are, that are required in, in that thing. So there's so much about this notion of a solution architect in our context, what we believe that is still intentional. And I actually believe so much of the framework of design thinking, each of those stages is intentional because often I have people in other faculty areas go, well, we'd never use that visual arts kind of structure. It's too subjective. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, well, actually, <laughs> It provides a framework that is highly intentional, <laughs> scientifically worked out, and, and yeah, it has steps along as well. The, exactly. The, the challenge with solutions architect is actually the first thing you have to do is be a problem finder. You have to actually. There's no point being a solutions architect to the wrong problem. That's what we built um, Notosh on: problem finding and um, problem shaping. So when we work with ThyssenKrupp engineering firm. Uh, in Germany, uh, where we ran their, I mean, award-winning innovation program that we designed they keep 50% uh, of it is problem shaping and uh, fundamental truths, which all of which is engineering speak, all of which is massively objective. So there's no yeah. way that um, math teachers, uh, history teachers, dare I say, could, could say, well, it's, it's too subjective. It's too, yeah. uh, too much a creative arts thing. Uh-uh. It's, it's how you research. It's the scientific method of anything. So my question around this, this, this notion of a solution architect how, if I was to say to you, you know, um, how could we help the teacher whose class is, you know, period five at the end of the day to cultivate the graduate outcome of a solution architect, not only from an engagement point of view, but more important, more important than that, from a self-determination point of view? How can we support that individual in, 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 in the average classroom anywhere in the world? I had period eight. We had long days. Uh, period eight on a Friday uh, or period eight on a Thursday, it was never a great time to do anything that uh, was too teacher controlled. Uh, but actually, I'd say that's a good a good rule of thumb. So what can you do to set your learners up when they come into the room? They, they're not waiting for you. They can crack on with their own projects, with their own ideas, uh, developing their own thinking. And your job on period five or period eight is to uh, marshal what they're doing, to push and to support. I think the main job of a teacher is push the ones that are coasting and support those who need it. Um, and they, that, that allows you to cover the whole range of kids in the class, right through, you know, through the middle. But if you are trying to do this kind of thinking by standing at the front and teaching them how to do it, they'll never learn. So coming up with projects that allow them to um, define their own questions, number one, that allow them to, that require them to collaborate even if it's just for feedback loops on their work that uh, give them a, a deadline, but not necessarily tell them what the product is they've got to produce. Deadlines are good, but don't necessarily make it an essay or a video or give them a choice as to what they're going to produce to show off their thinking. And also giving clear expectations or navigating clear expectations of how many percent finished do we expect our thinking to be? So I'm going to come up with a 20% version of my thinking today. Uh, are you going to try and come up with a 60% finish? I'd like, to, I'd like you to be getting close to 80% in three weeks' time and leave it to the students to work out where they are in relation to that, come up with their own rubrics of success. So what's really interesting for me is so much that you have been sharing with us today 
that relate, relates to the notion of how we learn is just as important to what we learn. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and I know that's so much of, of what you do at no Tosh and, and, and the books and, uh, and, and the work with, with schools and other organizations. My final question to you is this before I ask Phil to kind of wrap things up. Why is this work important to you? I think that the system, the people working in the system at the top have such good intentions for what they want to see. They want to see more equity. We want to close the achievement gaps where they exist. We want to um, make sure that teachers are really happy in their job and stay and want to be there. There are all these things going on at the top, but all of those things are really defined not by what people in the very top of the system can do, but they are defined by what um, people in the teaching profession and in communities themselves, parents feel they are empowered to do. An empowerment of teachers, of parents and of young people is something that the, the system needs to get a lot better at. Some systems are better than others. You see what happens when uh, young people don't feel empowered on an issue. For a while, nothing and then it explodes out. Then you have young people seizing control, taking to the streets. They've done it for environment. It won't take long before they're doing it for other things. In Scotland, they took to the streets because the uh, examinations that never took place led to a postcode lottery where your destiny was based on the performance of pupils from your postcode years ago. Horrifically unfair. They took to the streets on the Saturday and by the Tuesday, I think, they had managed to change policy. That's just the beginning. So um, we don't need to go to the streets to empower young people and parents and teachers, but we do need to encourage it where it happens. We need to make sure they've got the skills and the tools, the toolkits to do that too. And the number one toolkit that teachers need at the moment is time, longer time. We need uh, longer periods of time learning, not 45 minutes ago, but two hours ago. We need to stretch out that school day. Uh, we need to give teachers time to sit together to plan we need to give them time to plan and make a meal of it, not quite manage and go back at it again. We need to make sure that time between a history teacher and an art teacher is off at the same time and not at different moments in the day so that they can collaborate on something fun together. There's so much around time that head teachers can do creatively. And in Scotland, it's been great seeing head teachers kind of forced into innovating that timetable and now reaping the benefits. What people like me are doing is trying to make sure that they don't think that's a temporary switch, but that they seize the opportunity in front of them and keep doing it the whole way through. And I would encourage uh, teachers listening to this, and I think most will be teachers rather than students or parents, but I'd encourage teachers to start thinking, what tools do they feel they're missing to take more of that control? What tools can they take control over developing themselves and what will they have to ask for? And then start asking. You and Macintosh, thank you so much for sharing your time with us today. It's, it's been absolute education. I mean, just riveted listening to you talking about the way in which we might be able to chart pathways together and to do it by thinking differently and to have the courage. I'm going to use that word because I think you are very courageous around what you do, but you're also incredibly self-effacing around that. I think it was Jim Collins who talked about the the notion of humility and willpower and the ability to bridge the apparently irreconcilable gap between the two is a sign of great leadership. And, and I, I'm seeing that in you and I'm, and I'm, and I'm encouraged and inspired and I'm, I'm, in cha I'm challenged by it. I know that many thousands of our listeners out there will be 
as well, Terry. Thank you so much. Um, please Thank stay you. in touch with us and um, uh, good luck in everything that you're doing in and around the world. And I hope the rest of this year works its way through and that next year is a better year for you. We look very much forward to also having you here in Melbourne at some point, Matt. And so we can uh, uh, catch up and we'll, we'll get, we'll bring, we'll bring the Sydney boy down to, to, to join us and, uh, and have a meal and, and, and continue this conversation and continue to school him on the relevance yeah. of uh, divergent thinking. The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.